every time I do one of these series, I'm blown away because when I start, I imagine this week's long journey that we're gonna go on together. And then one day I find myself standing in front of you saying, well, here we are. You know, the doctor told me that this thing would be off, that I could stop wearing this sling in six weeks. Well, first thing I'm thinking is six weeks, are you kidding me? And then I realize we've been talking about Ruth almost that long and now we're at the end of the study. So, you know, unfortunately, as, as you people my age and older will say, Quite plainly, uh, time goes a lot faster than you wish it would sometimes. <laughs> you remember when six weeks seemed like forever when you were little? Now you think, six weeks? How will I ever finish in six weeks? How can we get this done? So here we are then at the end of the journey through the story of Ruth. And I, I've heard that it's been a blessing to you, that you may have learned a few things that you didn't know, but more importantly, the Spirit of God has spoken to all of us through this, this book. And uh, today we're going to read the last chapter, and we're going to talk about what it means. And uh, you can find Ruth 4 in your Bibles whenever you wish, because that's where we'll start. But I have a few things to share with you beforehand. Um, we took a little bit of a side trip last week, as you recall, to kind of find the connection between the book of Revelation and Ruth. And that was a fun thing we did together with that. And it's exciting to see how the continuity of scripture is so easy to recognize when you do the, the little bit of work that it requires to, to see it plainly. And uh, that was exciting. But you may recall that I told you two weeks ago today that Things were looking really good for Ruth and Boaz, but Boaz pointed out to her that there was one other person who had just a little more responsibility and privilege for uh, this kinsman redeemer role than him. In other words, just like any good romance story, their love has been discovered. It's meant to be in the music's playing in the background and then in the then the camera sort of fades and focuses on someone in the background and there stands the only thing that could get between them and their perfect love. Sound familiar? If, you're not, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just watch the Hallmark Channel. It's like every two hours you can watch the same story over and over again. Oh boy, am I in trouble. <laughs> you know, I talk about marriage a lot. And uh, it's because I've decided that the best thing I can do for the people in my life that I love is keep working on marriage. And I can te teach you more about that or tell you more about that some other time. But I decided when I became a father that the best way to raise awesome children was love their mother. And I decided when I became a pastor that the best way to, to, to love my congregation was to be a good husband and father. And I decided if I always did those things first, then the other stuff would fall into place. And so far, it's proven to be true. But one of the biggest lessons I've learned in this part of my life is, is that I have to sit and watch Hallmark specials at Christmas. And I got to act like I want to be there. And then the funniest thing happened. I realized I did it because I wanted to be there. Because just being alongside her while she's watching something that she really enjoys is all the reason I needed to do it. I mean, it was just cool, you know? 
And so it was like, well, you know, I could sit here while she's watching this show and I can be right next to her and what could be better than that? And, you know, I could play Candy Crush or something while the show's on. Then all of a sudden I find myself getting into them. And all of a sudden I realize I kind of like them too. <laughs> and then I realized I like them because she likes them. And so it's funny how love does that, right? You know what I'm talking about? I can see it on some of your faces. And this whole book of Ruth, and, and somehow I'm going to bring it back to Ruth here. But this whole book of Ruth is about love, right? Have you figured that out? I mean, this is a book about love. It, it sounds like a book about the love between Boaz and Ruth, but, but the longer you look at it, the more you realize it's a book about the love between Naomi and Ruth. But, but, but if you really look at it, you begin to realize that it's a book about God's love above all else. It's, it's about God's love. And I just described sitting on the couch at Christmas time watching, well, actually at Halloween time, watching Christmas shows on Hallmark. And, and I... I realized that that's what love does. Whither thou goest, right? Wherever you go, I go. If you go downstairs to watch a Hallmark movie, that's where I'm going, you know? And, and uh, that's, that's, this, is, this is love, you know? And, and God says, okay, I'm with you. I'm going where you're going. Now, I need you to be where I am for your own good, but I'll go where you're going first. And that's the amazing thing. It's something that John Wesley would call prevenient grace. It means that God's grace is always out there ahead of us. It, it, and, and the problem with making names and labels for this stuff is that it, it sort of takes the touchy-feely side out of it. But the reality is prevenient grace is God's love for us at a time when we didn't particularly love God back. That's all it is. It means that we didn't know that Boaz was watching while we were out there in the field, that he had deliberately left the gleanings in for our sake. That, that's really what it means. It, it means that God is leaving you spiritual food for the goodness of your soul, and God's watching from a distance, so to speak, while you harvest it. And, you know, you think you found that there. But God left that there. You know, you, you think that you uh, are entitled to it, let's say, because it's the rules. The, the law says that the, the people who are wealthy and have food in the fields are supposed to make one pass through the field and leave something behind. And, and so it's easy to think that those who benefit from gleaning are entitled to that. But this book and this story remind us that God did it on purpose. That, that God, even after he had to cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, still provided them with clothing through the shedding of blood. Taught them how to toil and bring from the earth its fruit. You know, even when they disrespected God and injured God, God still took care of them. God still acted first and acted on their behalf and for their sake. And so you see this love story being summarized in the story of Ruth. And 
the most important thing you can take away from the book of Ruth is how you choose to respond to it and how you choose to respond to God. Now, some of the images are easier to extract than others, but you, you might remember in chapter 3, Naomi has given specific instructions to Ruth about what to do now that Boaz is done with the harvest and he's finished uh, with the reaping on, on the threshing floor. And she gives Ruth some specific instructions. She says, Ruth, you're an alien in this world. You, you don't belong here. You became a part of my family because you married my son, who was a native of this land, and you became one of our daughters because Naomi's husband, Elimelech, was faithful to God, but left the land and probably left behind some debt and left behind some property that he was no longer entitled to and probably left, time, left behind some of his reputation. And there's indications that because his name is translated to uh, God is my king, Elimelech might have been on the right side of a negative political situation. He may have been standing up for God at a time when, during the time of the judges, a lot of people were turning away from God. But in any case, it cost him his reputation, his legacy, his, his inheritance. He, he had nothing. And then he died, and because of his death and his son's death, he left the three women in this story with less than nothing. <laughs> you know, they were, they were as hard off as you could possibly be. And so Ruth is reminded by Naomi of all of this. And, and, and she's not saying this in a way to hurt her feelings, because you already know how much they love each other. She's just saying, Naomi is saying to Ruth, you understand that I'm less than nothing and you're less than that because you're not even a native of this land. And, and I love you dearly, Ruth, because you chose to follow me, because you chose to be with me and to be one of my people and to love our God and to worship our God. And there's a whole, sign, a whole series of signs in there that Ruth didn't just follow Naomi for love of Naomi. She had fallen in love with Naomi's God. And that becomes really obvious too as you look at the story. And so you realize that she's feeling drawn helplessly, just compelled to move towards this God, Yahweh, this God of Israel. And Ruth says, Nevertheless, I'm an alien. I'm not one of you. And with that, Naomi begins to instruct her on how things are done under the law of Moses, how things are done in the homeland where Yahweh is the God of the people. She gives instruction to Ruth, and Ruth is following everything she says, you know, my wife is a marvelous chef. She can just take stuff out of the refrigerator and the cupboard and make food happen. It's incredible. Good food. Bethany's followed in her footsteps. I'm a recipe follower. I'm not a chef, but I can make you something decent to eat as long as I have a recipe and all the necessary ingredients because I'm real good at following instructions. I think Bethany told me the other day, she said, you're a rule follower, Dad. Yeah, in this case. 
This is what Ruth is doing. She's like me with a recipe. She's following the recipe to the letter. If it says three quarters of a cup, no more, no less. That's how I would do it. And you'd get exactly what the recipe planned. But there'd be nothing really creative about it in my case. And Ruth is following these instructions and she's trusting Naomi and doing exactly as Naomi says. And on that night when Ruth is ready to make her play, when she's ready to, to ask Boaz for the deliverance for her family, Naomi gives her these instructions. She says, wash yourself, take a bath, Get yourself nice and clean. Now, we don't know exactly what this means because you see in, in that culture, there were, there were a couple of different reasons people bathed. A few, really. One is the ritual bathing, a mikvah. You take a spiritual bath. You, you, you go into the water and take off your outer garment, your inner garment, whatever. You take off all this dirty stuff from the road and, and then they put a clean robe on you so that you can enter into the worship place. So if you can imagine, we have to have a mikvah before you can come to worship on Sunday morning. It means everybody's going to come in the lobby, kind of like when you used to go to the public pool, right? You know, you go in the locker room, put on your bathing suit, walk through that little puddle of water and out into the pool, right? And uh, that's one kind of washing. But then there's another kind of washing that's particular to women, and it has something to do with monthly things and so forth. And... Then there's this literal, like, you're dirty, take a bath, you stink, you know, kind of like what we'd tell our kids, right? We're not really sure that it was any of these, but it seems like what she's being told to do is prepare herself physically, you know, to, to, to realize that what she's about to do requires a sort of total commitment, and you might say, well, what's so weird about her taking a bath? You know, I mean, don't people take baths in those days? Yeah, they do, but not as often as we do. You know, um, <laughs> we were watching the Chronicles of Narnia. I've been reading a lot of C.S. Lewis stuff lately, and I decided yesterday while I was resting to watch uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and there's a great line in there from the beaver. He says, she says something about, it's like his wife says something about giving him a bath, and he says, yeah, it's the worst day of the year. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, <laughs> I get it. That's funny. Sometimes God has to slow you down in order to make you hear and see things you wouldn't normally see. And I, I got more of the jokes in there than I ever did before. But this is, this is the kind of bath that you might take the day before your wedding, let's say. And that's why she then anoints herself with oil, fragrant oils and things, you know, they, they didn't have deodorant. I mean, you just washed yourself really well and then you put a, a sweet smelling aroma on yourself with the oils and things to mask your natural body odor. And then she puts on her best dress, her best robes, and she does all of this before she claims the redemption that she is being told she's entitled to, that, that Boaz can provide for her. Now, there's an underlying message there that they love each other, and you can see that this love affair has begun. But I want you to notice that before she went to get 
the redemption. She had to deal with herself first. You know, it's sort of funny because, because one of the things that's been like a mantra of mine since long before ministry really is it's not about me. You know, I mean, I realized a long, long time ago that there's not a lot about my relationship with God that makes sense if I think that any of it's really about me. And what I really mean by that is in a vain way. It's vanity to think that God needs anything that I might do or say or be. It's vanity to think that I have a part to play in my salvation other than just to receive it. So, so the whole concept of vanity is what separates us from God. And so when we talk about preparing to receive the redemption, what we're seeing in this image is, is Ruth is now ready to really come into the fullness of this choice she's made to follow Naomi, follow Naomi's God, enter into a lifetime commitment with Naomi's people. And Naomi says, then you need to wash yourself. You need to get clean. It's not the cleanliness that the spirit can only give. It's just the reality that you've got to accept where you are in this process. A lot of people, especially if they've grown up in church like I did, never really deal with the nature of sin in their own lives. A lot of people don't deal with the fact that they're sinners. And I'm spending a lot more time on this than I intended to, but it's so important that you acknowledge the fact that God wants to save you. God wants to provide you with the deliverance. God wants to make you part of God's family by redeeming you. And yet, it won't mean anything unless you're honest with yourself. You've got to take a hard look at yourself. And you've got to recognize you're dirty. And I mean you figuratively, because this is about my story too. This is about my own redemption. This is about anyone who's really experienced the Christ given redemption of new life and new birth in Christ. And, and, and the reality is you've got to recognize you're a sinner. You have to recognize you're dirty, you're filthy. You've been that way because you've been walking in the dark outside of God's love and you've rejected God except when God was giving you what you wanted anyway. You know, so it's like, like it's, it's the whole attitude towards God that we're talking about. The essence of sin is an attitude towards God. And when you recognize that you've got an attitude towards God that isn't good, you realize you're a sinner, you realize you're broken, you're flawed, you're damaged, you're not ready to enter into the relationship with God that God has in mind for you, then you've got to deal with that. You've got to recognize it. You've got to submit it to the soap and water treatment, you know? And then, having been made clean, then you get anointed with oil. Now, we did anointing last week in the service, and you might remember that, that in that process, I told you that in the Old Testament, it's sort of like a, a setting apart. You know, it's a sanctification. You mark somebody with oil to sort of set them apart for a purpose. And in the New Testament, it's more of a healing thing, but they both indicate the same thing. The oil is an indication that something new has happened to you or will happen to you. And then she dresses differently. Then she goes to Boaz. And if you'll remember, Boaz said, 
You are too kind. There's a lot of better looking younger men out there, but you chose me. <laughs> that's, that's a really humble response. It's not like he doesn't know that she needs him. It's not like he doesn't understand that Naomi is behind this and that they're working together to take care of their family, or their little the two of them really. That they're, he knows all of that, but, but he's, he's thinking, you know, there's a lot of ways you could take care of this. In fact, he might have even assumed that they knew there was another kinsman redeemer who had more claim to this responsibility. And with that, I better get busy and read that fourth chapter because you all want to see me land this plane. You know, Wes got up here a few weeks ago with one of these slings on because he had the same surgery. And I thought, well, if he can preach with one arm tied behind his front, I can too. But so far, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I'll have to get the, the audio out and compare notes later. Ruth 4 says this, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and he sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. That's the other guy. And Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. And then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. I will redeem it, the, relative, the other relative said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, uh, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot. I, I got to stop there. So basically, Boaz is really slick. He says, so, uh, you know, you're entitled to this property. You know, and the guy's eyes light up like, yeah, I'll take that. Your property's always worth more than money, you know. And, and, and then Boaz says, of course, you know, you also get the daughter and the mother-in-law. And so, so the guy says, hmm. Meanwhile, he's probably picturing his wife at home. I can almost imagine Boaz saying, oh, and Naomi will be such help in your kitchen. I know your wife will just love her. <laughs> yeah, right. This, this, this is funny to me, the way this plays out, because he's, he's working on this guy. He's working his guy over. He, he, doesn't, he didn't get that wealthy by accident. The man knows what he's doing. <laughs> so then he announces to the elders, because, you know, everything happens around the city gate. In those days, if you wanted to make a public business transaction, you know, now we'd go down to the courthouse and have it recorded and all that. They did it all right around the city gate. And the elders uh, were, were just literally the senior people in the community. They would all be there as witnesses. And so Boaz says, okay, you're my witnesses. You heard it. You heard him say, yeah, I wouldn't mind having the property, but I won't really want the rest of that. 
Here's the other thing. We already know that, that Naomi's you know, going to be like a bonus mother in the house. I'm sure that was exciting news for him. But then he also has to deal with the fact that, that Ruth is this beautiful, exotic woman from Moab. Now, I'm sure that was going to go over really well in this house, too, especially since he has a physical responsibility as well. So when he weighs the consequences, he thinks, man, this property's not worth that much to me. And that's when Boaz takes over. Then I'll take care of it, and these elders are my witness. Case closed, end of discussion. The music plays, the kiss happens, and the credits start rolling. That, that's pretty much how that book ends. Except that it goes on to tell us that that marriage eventually produced the lineage of our Lord Jesus. And you can't help noticing, by the way, how beautiful it is that the son of Rahab the harlot, who was the only person to survive the walls of Jericho tumbling down because she loved the Lord and supported the Lord's people. This son of hers, Boaz, then marries a foreigner named Ruth, who becomes the progenitors of our Lord and Savior through the family line of David. So isn't it amazing how these radically flawed people, or so it would seem, become the place in which God plants the very seeds of our redemption, the very redemption that saves the whole world as we read in Revelation 5. That's what's so amazing about this story is you can never really stop digging into it, but you must, it must be a prerequisite to read Ruth. And actually, I recommend Esther. So if you want to join me for the Esther class that I'm going to teach on Wednesday nights, these are prerequisites for understanding any of the stuff that is prophesied about the times yet to be fulfilled in our lives, the, the, the return of Christ and so forth. Because to really understand the nature of the event, you've got to understand how God feels about you. How you need to change how you feel about God. That's the washing part. You've got to change the way you feel about God. Um, I find myself saying I'm sorry to God a lot more with every passing year. Which seems ironic because I know that God doesn't hold me accountable the same way anymore because of Jesus and yet my love for God has increased every day to the point where it just bothers me when I haven't given God what he's due. It just bothers me when I go for an hour without sort of, you know, sitting down on the couch and being where he is because I want to be there. See, being a husband and a parent has taught me everything I need to know about how to love God because... It works the same way, only exponentially better in every sense. This is a story for the ages because it's a story that teaches us about our own relationships with each other and it shows us how we use those relationships to model the relationship between God and his son and between the son and the spirit and between the spirit and our spirits. In other words... We read this story in order to understand what love looks like. 
what real love looks like. The love of God the Father for the creation, for the people that God is so eager to redeem. And it gives us literal examples of how to be with each other and with God. So, whether you know it or not, you've probably read one of the most important books in the Old Testament with this study. And it would please me to know that for at least some of you, that was completely unexpected. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word, for this beautiful example of your love and grace, for all that it can teach us from here on forward about ourselves and those we love. Help us, Lord, to think of you in the right way and to love you back, to make ourselves clean and to be anointed as new creations to live for the day when our bridegroom calls us. We pray this in all things in his holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Mm -hmm.